Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Zeno Agora. I'm Matthew Janos. I'm Matthew Brown. And um, today we have a very special guest. Um, Matthew, I think you would like to introduce him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, today we're joined by uh, Jonathan Hearn. Uh, he's a professor of, uh, in political and historical sociology. Um, you mentioned earlier that you did a PhD in anthropology and, um, you say, ethnography? Was it well, I'm an ethnographer, but ethnography. it was an anthropology. Okay, yeah. nice, lovely. Um, you've been with the uh, University of Edinburgh since 1998, as mm -hmm. you've just told us. Um, and you're also, I noticed in your book, uh, president of the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism, mm -hmm. uh, and also a founding member of uh, Edinburgh Academics for Academic Freedom, mm -hmm. if I've got that correct. Yep. Um, and today we're going to be talking about uh, your new book that you've just published, uh, The Domestication of Competition. You, you missed one important yeah. biographical detail. He's a Texan. <laughs> yes, he is a Texan. Yes, I am. Um, so what I would like to start by reading just a couple of short quotes mm -hmm. from the book. Mm -hmm. um, Can we give the title first? Yeah, I just said the title. Oh, okay. Um, the idea of the domestication of competition is to be understood as a way of understanding how the role of competition in human social life has changed over the centuries. Uh, and sorry, uh, this domesticated kind of competition brings benefits uh, as a spur to achievement and an alternative to more brutal forms of conflict. It can and does become dysfunctional and pathological. It is a perennial aspect of social relations, and that is why we need a realistic understanding of competition so we can bring, a, so we can bring out its benefit, benefits and limit its injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, following from that, I'd like you to uh, sort of introduce the book in your own terms. Um, tell us uh, why you chose to publish the book. Now, I noticed at the beginning you said that it has been a long time mm -hmm. coming in the process. So, um, yeah, if you could explore that for us, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, I'll start with why now. I mean, the uh, most academic books are not, you know, immediate responses to what's happening in the news this year. It's, you know, they take a long time. And this is... Uh, I had, in my research on theories of power in the social sciences, you know, one of my central concerns has always been how do we understand how modern liberal forms of society achieve legitimacy, you know, in the eyes of its of its citizens, of its you know members of society, when there is a kind of built-in distrust of authority hmm. and government, you know, it's kind of in with the bricks with that kind of system. So I've always been particularly interested in the question of how does modern liberal society achieve authority and legitimacy? And that got me, when I was writing on a book several years ago called Theorizing Power about that, uh, it got me thinking about this question and the role of competition in doing some of that legitimation work mm -hmm. in, in these kinds of societies. Um, and I had a, a, a mid-career fellowship in 2013, 2014 from the Independent Social Research Foundation, which gave me a period of time to just concentrate on this question and do a lot of reading, and uh, and it, you know, in the short run, it led to various articles. But I always had the idea that I'd write a book about it mm. uh, when I had time to, you know, sit down and write it. And mm. luckily, a pandemic helped me do that. So There's plenty of time to do that. Plenty yeah. of time to do that. Yeah, and a sabbatical, I have to say. But, okay, excellent. Um, you you made a pretty a few important, important distinctions at the, the beginning of the book. Um, you identified uh, three premises that sit behind your argument, one being uh, power, mm -hmm. being a primary driver of human action, mm -hmm. uh, one being um, those who are doing that are uh, actors or agents. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. you prefer the mm -hmm. term actors mm -hmm. over agents. Um, and the concept of evolution, like social mm -hmm. evolution. Mm -hmm. Could you uh, talk to us more about the importance those, of those three yeah. concepts behind your thesis? Yeah, I mean, those are, you know, in some level, that's me kind of summing up my general theoretical equipment that I've <laughs> arrived at mm -hmm. over many years of, of working at, on stuff. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, the idea is, first off, that, you know, in my view, understanding society in general is generally understanding uh, forms of managing power relationships between human beings. I mean, that's basically what society is, as a way of organizing the potential collective power of the group in a certain way that, again, achieves some sort of legitimacy, you know, endures, stands up. Uh, and 
and I'm very interested in this question of how, on the one hand, we are interested in power to do things. We mm -hmm. want to have the, you know, you know, just as agents, we all want to be able to achieve things in our lives. And as collectivities, we want to be able to do things. Uh, but as society becomes more complex, uh, the power to entails also more and more power over. In other words, we, the social forms that we organize ourselves through involve hierarchy mm. and chains of command. Uh, and so one of the great puzzles is, 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 um, uh, how, how, you know, how, what's the tolerance level for, for that level of power over and, and, and the way that you control it, uh, in terms of when it becomes too oppressive. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that kind of power dynamic, I think is really central to understanding any kind of society or any kind of complex organization within society. Uh, you know, it, it helps explain families even, you know, sure. uh, and then actors, uh, there's, I mean, without going into too much detail, there is a kind of tension in the study of power between attributing power to social structures <laughs> that have, um, that do kind of shape and direct our lives and, and put constraints on us. Uh, but, you know, my claim, and, and many of the people who study power say, but nonetheless, somehow you have to be able to trace the concept of power down to social actors, mm -hmm. people who actually exert power, achieve ends, and in some cases, you know, do that by subordinating other people or, you know, perhaps willingly, perhaps unwillingly. Um, and so uh, the part of the point there is simply that we cannot understand uh, power and how it works in society without understanding the agents or actors through which it operates. And those and the thing about society becoming larger and more and more complex over human history is that uh, we learn ways to form collective actors that uh, can do things that individuals rarely can. Mm. So much of the study of power in modern society is not the study of individuals, great men, as the saying used to go, but um, uh, it's the study of large corporate actors like companies, corporations, states, uh, political parties. Social <laughs> all, movements. Uh, social movements. Yeah. Although, I mean, social movements are an interesting case in that they're often on the cusp of this this, this actorhood mm -hmm. in that when they're very spontaneous in reactions to immediate, you know, circumstances, you know, people come to, individuals come together and act mm -hmm. together, but they fall apart and dissolve very quickly unless the movement forms more formal organizations. Right that are corporate actors in the, in the other sense that I'm talking about. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a, in the social movement literature, that's a, a basic issue of the kind of the spontaneous mm. movement versus uh, what are called social movement organizations that, and, uh, that become very kind of routinized and kind of sustain certain movements. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that, that's power and actors. And then, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, the idea is that this dynamic of competition and actorhood, as there are various kinds of actors, you know, trying to exert themselves and achieve things, um, is one of the main drivers of social change. Uh, so it's not that other things aren't important, like demographic growth or technological change. You know, there are lots of things that affect social change. But I'm arguing that um, one of the reasons the concept of evolution is applicable to social change and we're not talking about biological evolution, sure. we're talking about social evolution, is precisely because it has this dynamic of entities, corporate actors in competition with each other and driving mm -hmm. each other on towards, you know, different forms. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and so I have just a question about that because mm -hmm. you said that the, the competitive nature, kind of that striving for greater power mm -hmm. um, drives the social change, but where do you think that that competitive nature stems from? Is it something that is um, institutional in society or is it something inherent in our own personalities as humans? We have competitive nature or is it rather the environment that we are put in that enables us or mm -hmm. shapes us in a certain way to be competitive? Yeah. I'm uh, yeah, distrustful, suspicious of any attempt to claim a kind of 
competitive instinct in human beings, just because I think competition is too complex a behavior to be you know, genetically determined. Obviously, we have their kind of fight or flight <laughs> instincts, and you know, there are various kinds of pretty basic uh, hardwired into us behaviors. But um, I define competition as uh, rivalry over some limited good, and that's a very old definition. It goes back to the 16th century. Um, or 17th century, uh, and that's not a that's not an instinct or a, a part of human nature. That's that's a kind of situation. So, in a situation where there is, you know, we're we're not here uh, competing to be there. Right. <laughs> it's it's freely available. There's no there, there's it's not a limited good, but uh, you know we might compete for speaking time or something if we had big egos or whatever. But um, we'll get there. <laughs> so yeah so and that's part of the point of the title of the book domestication of competition is precisely that the point is that at a certain point in human history um uh the way that we compete with each other becomes highly institutionalized highly formalized very kind of rule governed uh in political economic mm -hmm. cultural spheres and that the, the ensuing competition is uh, enabled or an effect of that institutional change. It's not. Uh, it's not just human competitiveness, you know, from 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 somewhere deep in our genes expressing itself. Mm. Um, so, is it is it correct to say that essentially, what you're saying is that we kind of we start we started in this Hobbesian world where. Um, there's there's no institutional structure mm -hmm. and we're all just competing for this limited these limited goods out there. But then it became we created institutions that not just through, you know, political institutions, mm -hmm. but also societal institutions mm -hmm. that allowed us or that, that caused us to be competitive in, in a quote unquote civil mm -hmm. civil uh, way. In a civil I way. I mean it yeah. I mean the argument is very much about reigning in violent competition. Uh, and 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 replacing it with more civil forms of competition. I mean, I tend to agree with Max Weber that competition is peaceful conflict. Basically. Right. Um, I would. I mean, uh, you, know, you know, the foundation is not terribly Hobbesian in the sense that uh, I don't. Uh, you know, I I think if you go back in human history, <laughs> human his human beings were never. Absolutely isolated right. individuals in competition with each other. We, from our primate origins, we were parts of families and bands, mm -hmm. and 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 the way we do that has changed from our you know primate ancestors. But um, but there's built-in cooperation and uh, into the you know the species and our instincts, as well as capacity for competition. And that's you know one of the basic points here is that. Um, People often talk in a critical way of you know we, you know we hate competition it's it ruins us <laughs> let's have cooperation but we often find that competition is the driver of cooperation I see strong cooperation is is happens in right. groups that are in competition with other groups right and that's obviously part of our primate history but uh, but I'm saying that principle mm. is kind of bedded in and elaborated so in a lot so, of ways. so competition does not mean every man for themselves but rather it's it's a driver of of collaboration and cooperation with others yeah and it and when you harness it uh in the way i'm talking about it um the kind of creative dynamism that <laughs> comes with competition uh can be unleashed and amplified uh without the kind of cost of, of society wiping each other out. Mm. I, I don't want to be, you know, we still live in an international world where states are in right. some cases kind of zero-sum struggles with each other. There's real, you know, brutal competition still with us. But, um, but the book is very much about how the liberal form of society that's generally contained within liberal democratic state regimes, um, uh, Manages to harness this energy and and cultivate it to a kind of collective purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, there's a big difference between having to achieve legitimacy by uh, 
having a central authority lay down <laughs> what's true and what we believe and squash on anybody who doesn't agree with it versus having a system where people are invited to constantly put forth new proposals, new interpretations, new claims on truth, uh, but without killing each other. They, they find ways to kind of um, winnow out and select, you know, amongst those truth claims. Mm. You know, uh, that's, and I'm saying that that's a kind of, that will make it, make this kind of society more ideologically productive <laughs> and, you know, ideological, not in the kind of uh, negative political sense, but in just the general sense of ideation mm -hmm. evolving. Yeah. Well, I found, I found the chapter on, um, uh, from the church to the universities, mm -hmm. like particularly fascinating, very relevant. Um, and on the point you said there a second ago about, um, the example that you used was the, uh, the breakdown of this idea of a, a shared truth that mm -hmm. we're seeking after, right? Mm -hmm. All that there's, um, kind of like the American political project, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have a shared, uh, you know, you, there was that idea of we're Americans mm -hmm. first and mm -hmm. foremost before any of the political mm -hmm. or ideological stuff. Um, within the university community, you identified there's been this, um, this breakdown of that mm -hmm. uh, idea that there's this uh, truth that we're all in pursuit of because mm -hmm. there's this relativistic strand. Mm -hmm. um, the I think you, you mentioned... Uh, the kind of the, the lived experience argument, mm -hmm. very subjective mm -hmm. um, way of putting forward truth claims. Mm -hmm. um, I had a question I was ramping up to, and I lost the train of thought. Could you provide us with some other examples from the other um, domains you mm -hmm. looked at of the where that a similar kind of breakdown can happen, where you because we, we mm -hmm. spoke about the yeah. the positive and the mm -hmm. negative aspects yeah. of competition yeah. Yeah. can you give some more examples of uh well, the negative aspects of yeah it? i mean classically i mean i'll sort of preface this by saying you know one of the core arguments is that you know i, I look at the military sphere the economic sphere the political sphere and then the kind of cultural ideological sphere whatever you want to call that um and the one of the basic premises is that the modern nation state is based on bringing all the different military powers <laughs> that are dispersed in feudal society and constantly at war with each other and kind of low-level warfare was characteristic of that kind of society under the aegis of the civil state and so you end up with a single military system that is subordinate to the state um, that sort of in some in a funny way eliminating military competition within your national sphere is one of the things that enables the proliferation of competition in these other spheres, right? right. Uh, and so in economic sphere, uh, I mean, the, the obvious uh, thing that, that uh, happens in, in modern capitalist market-based economies is that uh, there is a chronic tendency towards monopoly, towards economic power concentrating in the hands of people who won you know, the, the, mm. the competition and can then reproduce that, that dominant position um, and, you know, so one of my arguments is that, uh, if you allow the society to get to the point where, uh, both you have big, you know, corporate economic actors, you know, huge insurance companies, big pharma or whatever, you know, um, uh, and people in the wider society have a sense that, you know, there's some people who are just up there <laughs> with all the money and, uh, kind of, you know, permanently, you know, ensconced in that position. Mm -hmm. Others who are struggling to be in the middle class, and still others who are really in precarious, you know, circumstances. That that uh, that situation will undermine, in people's eyes, the the presumption that we're all in the same competitive game to <laughs> of economic competition and to get ahead. And you know, if people feel like I don't have a chance to get ahead, mm -hmm. um, that's that's a that's a legitimacy problem for the capitalist system. In the political system. Uh, it's it's in, we're in a period where there's been kind of remarkable polarization, certainly in the United States, between right. the Republicans and Democrats, the left and right parties. But you know, for much of my adult life, if one had a criticism of the American party system, it would have been uh, that the parties are too much like each other, <laughs> uh, that they converge on the central point, 
and that central point is influenced by money and lobbying influence you know from the wider system that uh, tends to uh, uh, overwrite some of the kind of philosophical differences they might have um, so I've heard that be referred to as um, the uniparty yeah, this idea yeah. That there's just, it's not two separate parties, just kind of just one, one, one doing the same, basically the same thing, yeah. which is why you don't get much yeah. difference in operation when you swap from one to the other. Yeah. And I, you know, in a, uh, I think the present situation is dysfunctional in the United States. I think that situation is not good. You actually want a kind of, you know, a, a situation where parties are in genuine competition with each other yeah. and presenting generally different views. But all operating within the same uh, uh, general presumption of, uh, you know, that the game is legitimate. Right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the you know, like January sixth in, in the United States. You know, that's about people saying, not just not just that you know our guy didn't win, but the game is not legitimate <laughs> altogether. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that's that's a real uh, crisis, and it's it's a case of people ceasing to believe in the efficacy of party competition, right? Um, so that's another place where it breaks down. And then you were talking about universities and, yes, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, it's a very complex thing, you know, you know, there are different parallel cultures in the university sphere now around how we make truth claims. I mean, I tend to use this term throughout the book or through these chapters about, you know, describing ideological or cultural competition being competition over contending truth claims to the truth. And doing that has a presumption that um, there is some reality out there that we don't, that none of us has a perfect grasp on, and that's why we conflict over it and, and make contending claims. Um, but that that game, again, only works if people begin with that presumption that there is some reality about which there is truth and that we kind of compete to make claims on that. Mm -hmm. If people start to, you know, take strong, you know, constructionist view, epistemological views, um, or like you were suggesting, very strong kind of subjectivism, you know, kind of, you know, my moral beliefs are the foundation of what I say is true rather than, you know, what I observe. This tends to weaken the capacity of it to function as a, as a, arena of competing truth claims because mm -hmm. people will just talk past each other and just not listen to each mm -hmm. other because well, I suppose then it breaks down immediately into the unpleasant kind of conflict where it's about because if how you see the world is the world to you and there's mm -hmm. nothing anyone can say to you to contradict that mm -hmm. and someone tries to do that then you're at loggerheads immediately and so then there's that unproductive conflict rather than productive competition between yeah Backing the, backing the ideas backwards and forwards. Absolutely. Uh, sorry. I, I wanted to ask a question about um, legitimacy. Mm -hmm. um, because you mentioned that, you know, we've, in, in modern society, we've, we've kind of, you know, the, the goal of, of the, the liberal state is to have the military competition no longer um, be, you know, be a concern. And so you can focus on economic. Yeah. Within competition its, within its territory, right? Within its yeah, territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think that, and and then this, this idea, um, I'm going to attribute to Foucault, though I probably predates him. But this idea that there's power um, in the system, but you don't know where it's coming from mm -hmm. and how it's controlling you, and essentially how to to break it in order to maintain that mm. that competitiveness and i think uh, that some of the one of the main difficulties of liberal societies is a lot of people feel that way like mm. there is this power over them mm. particularly you mentioned the middle class stays mm. stagnant mm -hmm. um and there's not a lot of social mobility mm. even in um you know welfare states like scandinavian states you can mm. see that the social mobility is really is not that high. You know, mm -hmm. people who are born in lower class tend to stay lower class. People born in the middle class tend to stay there and same for the upper class. Um, and so when you have, you have people's perceptions that there's some kind of power over them that's preventing them from really 
um, competing, mm -hmm. let's say, mm -hmm. how do you, what's the solution to that? How do you solve that, you know, legitimacy crisis in liberal um, democracy to say to people, look, no, you know, there is real competition and you can move from lower to higher because mm -hmm. there is anomaly cases where somebody through a Herculean effort goes from, mm -hmm. you know, dirt poor to to rich and people point to that and say, um, see, you can do that. But the response is always, but, mm -hmm. you know, this is a singular, yeah. you know, or, or a unique case. The vast majority of people are, are stuck and we're not on, you know, um, we're not playing the same game. So how do you, how do you, and I think, and I think that, that question is, is more prevalent now mm -hmm. than it was even, you know, 10 years ago, let's say. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you stop or how do you solve that, that crisis? Uh, well, if I, if I knew how to solve it, I, I would. But, um, but uh, I mean, if I can just preface what I'm saying, you know, you've started with Foucault and, and he's, and you're right, he has this rather uh, amorphous concept of power where it's kind of everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And um, it's precisely that kind of conception of power that I'm, distancing myself from that in that early chapter mm -hmm. where I say to think about power we have to attribute it to actors otherwise mm -hmm. it just turn, turns into this kind of amorphous right. thing right um so the you know I the other thing I would say is that my you know uh my understanding the way I think about the modern economy modern capitalism uh is not uh that uh we're stuck in this choice between let the market rule and have power or let the state rule, which is, for various reasons, a lot of politics and party alignments. You know, major parties tend to divide along that line. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is the modern capitalist economy and the modern state evolved together. They are symbiotic. Mm -hmm. And and therefore, uh, kind of arguments to the effect of, you know, these things are in some sort of zero-sum struggle, and we need some sort of radical choice, one direction or the other. I don't, I don't believe that, mm. and therefore I don't have any problem with the idea of saying, if the economy is becoming stagnant and you know kind of permanently stratified, which, you know, this has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with globalization. Uh, you know, you know, America had fairly high mobility at a certain point. Uh, but we just won a big war and we were the dominant power and the economy was changing very rapidly and people were moving from industrial to white collar kind of work. But that sort of played itself out. And, and since then, in recent decades, it's kind of been much more stagnant despite remarkable technological innovation and change. Um, so if, if we end up in this place where it's starting to stagnate and people are not... Uh, um, feeling that the system is fair, you know, that's where I would say, well, we need to vote for political parties that will take a more interventionist relationship to this mm -hmm. and think seriously about um, what the minimum standards should be and how to, how to take areas that are extremely impoverished and invest in them. Uh, uh, and there can, you know, there can be lots of ways of doing that. You know, it doesn't just have to be direct aid. It can be, you know, uh, Developing local business and all sorts of things through incent, you know, tax incentives. There's lots of things one can do, and but it also raises the question of, you know, is there uh, is not only you know do we need to level things up as Boris Johnson likes to say, but do we need to level things down? Is mm -hmm. there a level of too having too much wealth and too much power in right. society? Um, so that's a point where I, um, even though I'm happy to, you know, I, I don't think we have any viable vision of something other than a kind of capitalist economy wedded to a modern welfare state. Uh, um, you know, generally, I think the state could take a more active role in trying to flatten things out and mm. make sure that the game is generally competitive. And does that look like, you know, taxes that are more <clears throat> um, balanced or that tax the, the rich at a higher percentage and Yes, I mean, you know, I'm, I don't want to, you know, I'm not an economist. Right. I'm happy to defer to, you know, economists about many of the details of this kind of stuff. Um, but, yes, I don't have have a problem with notions of 
progressive taxation uh, and uh, and saying that you know the through taxation or however the the state needs to find ways to guarantee investment in particularly depressed impoverished areas uh, and and investment that is not just keeping you know the wolf from the door but is actually stimulating economic growth mm. you know at the ground level so ensuring this competition is... yeah uh, and and you know it's it's uh, that uh, part you know part of the effect of an economy where there's a chronic tendency towards monopoly is that you know you get to points where you know it's just no longer profitable <laughs> for the kind of private sector economic actors to put money into certain communities to you know pursue uh, growth and so you know you at some point you have to kind of start moving things around I mean there's a place in the end of the book where I kind of mentioned in passing the the uh, Crouch report by the MP Tracy Crouch uh, who did a study of football <laughs> in the UK uh, and was recommending that the, we need to do things so that small local football teams can get some of the money that's constantly being sucked into the big teams at the top, right? And that's because community football, its value is in terms of things it does for the community. It's not its value is not you know simply in in creating football stars and huge gobs of money for a, a few te teams. Um, and and she's a conservative <laughs> MP, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> And 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 my argument is that kind of you know by analogy and I mean that's that's true for for the uh, system as a whole that um, whatever economic argument you make you know there are people who will say you know whoever succeeds most in the market economy you have to let them accumulate the wealth because they're the ones who are best equipped to know what to do with it you shouldn't interfere with that process you know against what I'm saying um, and that's you know that's an argument but my argument back would be. Yes, but if if that gets to the point where it starts to undermine regime legitimacy, um, you've got a bigger problem on your hands. <laughs> because because the economy is inherently tied to the state, right? Yes, that's why it would yes. undermine the state legitimacy. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. I mean, I don't. Again, I don't believe in this idea that it somehow naturally exists. You know, it can't exist without currencies, contracts, <laughs> uh, all sorts of you know, all sorts of things that the state provides that, mm. that, you know, and before the modern state arose, most, you know, limited international trade was just chains of rather tenuous contracts between people in different countries trading stuff along long routes, but it wasn't, you know, nothing like the incredibly dynamic, you know, perhaps too dynamic economy in terms of its kind of ecological impacts, mm. you know, was possible. So on this point of the legitimacy still, um, you're speaking about certain actors who accrue a lot of the wealth mm -hmm. um, and that alienates a lot of people, makes them suspicious, mm -hmm. um, disenfranchised, um, and to disengage and to kind of like drop out, mm -hmm. lock out, and mm -hmm. like you said, not commit their own personal resources to improvement because mm -hmm. what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. um, you spoke about sort of one of the solutions to this being sort of like progressive taxing or other ways of mm -hmm. uh, investing in infrastructure mm -hmm. or um, opportunities is one of the ways of dealing with this uh, alienation that people experience mm -hmm. that uh, that distribution to uh, most stuff in the hands of mm -hmm. a few. Mm -hmm. So there's this says that the the pre distribution or prices mm -hmm. law. I think it is. It's mm -hmm. like a, something like a the square root of the productive force produces 50 percent of mm -hmm. the output mm -hmm. um and so it's like uh like the uh, the sun in the solar system has got most of the mass mm -hmm. right if you take the sun out of the equation jupiter's got most of the mass mm -hmm. you take jupiter out of the equation and you can do this with uh, like books sold clothes mm -hmm. that you wear yeah. like it's a it's a this is all from the 80 40 that's the yeah, one 80, yeah that's the one yeah. um so how so how much of this alienation could be remedied not necessarily by because my concern is mm -hmm. uh the amount of because you're, you're talking about getting the balance right between mm -hmm. the economy and the state mm -hmm. but so my concern is like how much energy would the state have to put in 
to the economy mm-hmm. to rectify this imbalance if there's this mm-hmm. seeming force, right, mm-hmm. um, that isn't necessarily attached or it's kind of attached to the actors, but mm-hmm. the money seems to be moving itself in a kind mm-hmm. of way based mm-hmm. on what, like with sports, for example, like mm-hmm. the football teams, like the money goes where people's attention mm-hmm. goes. Like people like people buy yeah. season tickets, football tickets, jerseys. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of where the, the money channels. So how, like if we're talking about getting this balance right between the state and the economy, there's a concern of how much effort the state's going to have to mm-hmm. put in mm-hmm. to remedy something that's potentially could take a, an infinite or an increasing amount of energy, mm-hmm. which would then throw off that mm-hmm. that balance between getting the economy yeah. working yeah. And, and the state yeah. not being too overbearing. If that makes if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not sh- sure. <laughs> I totally. There's a bit of this kind of zero-sum image of for the state to accumulate the, the power to do that, it has to suck, you know, power out of the economy and become this. Well, not not so much suck power out of it, but as in as in to put effort and energies into mm-hmm. constraining it in mm-hmm. a way. So not like not like mm-hmm. not necessarily uh, like zero-sum mm-hmm. uh, abstracting the resources, mm-hmm. although that is one of the options. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess in in my head, I I have like the uh, the economy uh, as this kind of uh, fluid, mm-hmm. um, fluid state of affairs, right? And that that when you that's uh, that's energetic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so if you're trying to uh, if you're trying to stop or control where certain aspects of it are mm-hmm. going. The way I have it in my head is sort of like an orb or a mm-hmm. ball of uh, mm-hmm. nodes, or mm-hmm. and you're trying to like hold mm-hmm. it in a place, mm-hmm. and to do that requires a certain amount of energy, effort, yes. or power. Yeah. And yeah, I, I guess I guess I'm, I guess I'm concerned it's of like a sort a, of Hayekian a, argument. A, a, a that was a quite of, remarkable description of the economy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, my, I guess my, my, my concern yeah. is like the like a like a, a kind of positive feedback loop, mm-hmm. right? Where you're mm-hmm. gonna have to keep putting energy mm-hmm. into controlling something that is itself. Yeah. I guess I mean, I'm not sure that makes I, any sense. And I, I know I know what you mean. I mean, I uh, a I don't you know a I don't I'm I'm not that worried about that. But okay. but the uh, I guess I would say uh, the problem in the present is precisely that that. On its left, on its own, without some of this intervention, mm-hmm. that fluidity is uh, is is weakening, <laughs> precisely because large swathes of the population have very little access to capital, and small portions of the population have huge access to capital. And hasn't that, hasn't that always been hasn't that always been the case though? Even like so, even if you go back like to the aristocracy or feudal societies, you still have a small number of people who have access to all of the resources, and most people who don't have anything so well uh, y- yes although uh, I, mean, you, I mean that's the proportion issue but sure but you know certainly the modern market economy is is much more fluid and, and has has seen much more you know class mobility and stuff sure. in certain phases so it's it's different in that respect and you know so i see the argument i'm making as mm-hmm. is one of removing blockages <laughs> to a system that's not uh flowing to its most highest efficiency. I, I don't see it as uh, um, placing blockages. To placing blockages or, or, or okay. putting this incredible task on on the state. You know, having said that, the uh, um, you know there's a difference between understanding the state as just something that uh, steals the wealth of private citizens for its own purposes right <laughs> versus as something that that precisely because this modern economy is partly its creation uh and it is a democratic state it has a responsibility for making sure that the thing is is functioning properly because you know the the you know the the economy we're dealing with right now um you know various Things could happen in terms of new technologies and and shifts in ge- the geography of where investment is attractive that 
kind of shifts this and causes some, you know, thing, some of this blockages to release. I mean, I'm, there's a very, we have to be realistic, this, there's a kind of Euro-American-centric nature to this argument, right? Sure. Uh, in China, the middle class has grown hugely in the, in the last, you know, few decades. I mean, more people have been lifted out of poverty in China than, than you know, at any other point in history. But uh, so, you know, their, their issues are rather different from ours. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, uh, you know, because I see the state and, and, and the capitalist market economy as in this symbiotic relationship, um uh you know that that entails that the state has got to have some sort of role mm -hmm. if if you know i would sort of you know by analogy compare what's happened in and certainly in the us to a you know a problem of obesity you <laughs> know parts of the economy are incredibly obese and, other, and others are sort of starving mm -hmm. and that's you know that's uh that's just not functionally a healthy way to have the economy right. function yeah. Um, but uh, I'm generally sympathetic to the idea of a market economy where uh, there's lots of small and medium-scale businesses doing all sorts of things, you know, giving people, you know, livelihoods in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I'm, I'm not, although I locate myself sort of left of center, um, I, I'm not hostile to business. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't get that you know, sense. Yeah, and and uh, and I think it's uh, so. It's it's you know a lot of these issues are kind of uh, just about uh, rebalancing uh, the flow of capital, you know, mm, through the mm, system. Mm. Um, and I and I know you sort of alluded to the football thing. You know, you know what's wrong with you know. Liverpool, Manchester United, whatever, you know, kind of, you know, uh, being at the top and absorbing all the money. If that's what people are spending their money on, you know, it, it's it's freely chosen, right? Mm. Um, uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's absolute truth to that. But I think at the same time, you will hear people saying, but, you know, my club is just struggling to have enough money, you know, get enough bums and seats to, to, um, uh, to hire the few players it needs next, you know, people do have these commitments to these things that are kind of starving on the margin. At the same time sure. as they're, you know, people are contradictory. At the same time that they're sending all their money, they're you know, uh, towards the big teams. To to go back to that sports analogy, there's a there's a great book and then a movie called Moneyball. Um, to, I've seen that. the one that Brad Pitt was in. Brad Pitt, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's. You know, you have the Yankees who are drowning in money and then a team like the Oakland A's who mm. have no funding. And, and there's, a, there's a great line in the movie when uh, all of their like rookie players, stars, are um, basically becoming free agents. And so they know they're no longer going to be able to afford these players. Um, and so they're sitting in the, the room, the, the GM and all of the the scouts and, you know, the guys are all trying to say, oh, we need people who can hit, you know, 50 home runs and replace these guys. Um, and then GM, the Brad Pitt, is just like, blah, 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 blah. And he asks them, what's the problem? And they say, you know, we need to replace these guys. And he's like, no. The problem is there's rich teams, there's poor teams, and then there's 50 feet of crap. <laughs> and then there's us. Um, and, and anyway, the, the point is, they develop this whole different strategy to compete with these teams and and they have a great season. But in the end, um, the Yankees still beat them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just like demoralizing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, part of the reason this, this analogy of sports and the game comes up here is, you know, because I, in the concluding chapters, I, I developed that as, a, you know, I kind of argue that um, you know, if if you went back to medieval feudal society, uh, the dominant image or metaphor of society was the family, and you know the king was the father, and 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 you know there's this idea that that what gives society its order and its legitimacy and its structure is this image of it being kind of a familial structure writ large, which creates aristocracies and stuff. But in our 
post-aristocratic age, um, the, the central image is precisely this arena of competition. And the place where we refine that image to its kind of most purified, abstractly purified form is in games, sports, mm -hmm. you know, all these kinds of entertainments that we do to ourselves. And I'm, part of what I'm saying in the book is that this is a kind of like a deeply, somebody who read the book and was commenting on it recently said it was a sort of fractal-like image of, you know, this, this uh, image of formalized competition in a kind of game-like structure is... Um, ritualistic. Like ritualistic. You know, practicing in all the yeah. various little aspects of life. Yeah. I mean, it has many of the qualities of classic ritual. You know, there's procedures that have to be followed for the ritual to be legitimate. It's mm -hmm. it's uh, usually has kind of expert practitioners. <laughs> uh, and very often the study of ritual, rituals are understood as dramatizing fundamental things about the society and its and social order back to the people who live it, right? Um, and part of what I'm saying is that on the one hand, you know, it, there's something, it sounds frivolous to talk so much about games, <laughs> but I'm saying that actually our modern image of uh, what justice is, is based on the image of the sport or the game or the, you know, the rule, this rule governed system of competition. And that's, that's part of why it's central to how we entertain ourselves is we are telling ourselves a story about what makes social relations just in this this kind of society? What makes them fair? Um, That's interesting. And because what people get so upset when people cheat at games, right? You're yeah. Watching a game of football, someone handball or <laughs> offside or something, and mm. people get genuinely like you know they're like yes. they respond quite impassionately to a violation in the rules. So yeah, it's quite interesting. And uh, and it you know, but it spills over into our political discourse when. Uh, uh, Party gate was happening here, and and uh, you know, conservative conservative members of government were having parties while other people were locked down. Uh, the response was, uh, "Yeah, it's one rule for them and another yeah. one for us." You know, that that's the language that is kind of deeply embedded in how we understand yeah. understand things. Um, well, I guess that's what alienates you from the game, right? If you're recognizing this, there is one rule for them and one rule for me, but we're seem to be playing the same game yeah. so what's what's going on i'm gonna that increases the likelihood of people opting out right becoming yeah. disenfranchised and going actually well no i don't yeah. i don't want any part in the game that we're playing yeah and you know there, there are parts of society that are kind of de facto opted out uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's different you know there's two different strategies for opting out one is to you know, you go off grid or, you know, engage in kind of a criminal livelihood or whatever. Mm. But another way is to uh, be so rich that, you know, the well-being of the country you're in is, you know, you're a global citizen and it's just yeah. not your primary concern. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, my, once again, my argument is that, you know, if we want these kind of nation state, you know, political regimes mm. to survive you know one has to find ways to put limits on that those tendencies mm. well i also want well, to come back to the universities quickly yeah. on that idea of um, alienation um and uh putting forward truth claims one of my concerns um is about this like the idea of belief right so if you true or not mm -hmm. right that if you believe that the society you're in is systemically structurally or whatever it is um skewed against you for mm -hmm. whichever of the identity characteristics or mm -hmm. um domains of that argument can be made mm -hmm. the it's the that alienation can come about from the mere belief mm -hmm. that that's the case independent of the mm -hmm. the truth mm -hmm. va uh, mm -hmm. value of that and that kind of comes back to the uh relativistic subjectivist mm -hmm. um lived experience Mm -hmm. kind of arguments mm -hmm. that it's my lived experience that i feel based on my experiences mm -hmm. that this society is x y mm -hmm. and z against mm -hmm. me from from this group yeah. um maybe this isn't with like within the scope of your, your book necessarily <laughs> but like what or maybe it is because i i guess that's that again comes down to 
in a way, like the unfair competition between ideas, right? Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you've got this box around you and mm-hmm. your your lived experience, right? Mm-hmm. That's like a that's like the epitome of one rule for me and mm-hmm. another rule for some, for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So how? how um, I mean, I, if, if I can just read this little yeah. paragraph. <laughs> sorry, I'm, no, I know I I, re, I really like this 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 chapter paragraph. Sorry, um, and it's 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 from it's talking in the context of that um, that breakdown of that shared idea of a truth that mm-hmm. we're all kind of. Mm-hmm aiming at but disagreeing about and uh, mm-hmm. having conversations. Can you give the, the page number for those listening? Sure. So 277. So in universities, especially in the social sciences and humanities, this divergence has played out as the increasing polarization between an older, more realist, objectivist, and naturalistic pursuit of true interpretations and a newer preference for social constructivism, subjectivism, and a primary commitment to the moral message of arguments. In the latter case, research can become not so much the pursuit of truth as the pursuit of social justice. Thus, fields of study influenced by identity politics often see the purpose of research and writing as the emancipation of, or at least the struggle, on behalf of various identity groups. And this is, this is mm-hmm. the bit that I really like. I am not criticizing political struggle as such, which is inevitable and necessary. But to the degree that universities and their various sciences become zero-sum contests over ideological supremacy and institutional turf, rather than collective, ongoing, rule-governed competitions in search of truth, they cease to be either sciences or universities. Yeah, I think that I loved that paragraph. Okay. I thought it was. I thought it really, really, really nailed um, what's happening around us at the moment. Yeah, and that's. I mean. I mean, if you, if you read the book, you'll you'll find that you know one of the sociologists that has most influenced me is <laughs> which. Um, where can you uh, get the book? Uh, uh, well, Amazon. You can order it from Cambridge, or you can uh, you know uh, I, I think it's at our local bookstore, but I don't know. Um, for university people, uh, there's an there's an ebook on on in the library. So um, the, go and read it. Yeah, please do. Um, read early, read often. Um, <laughs> uh, but Max Max Weber, the German sociologist, mm-hmm. is a kind of influence on me, and part of that kind of argument is you know in tune with his arguments about um, to make you know the environment of the university of what academics do um, work. Uh, you have to have some sort of effort after what he called value freedom, but uh, you know this, you know that uh, whatever our personal moral convictions and, and values and beliefs, which we all have, you know we can't, you know nobody can shed those, right? Um, that you make a distinction between that and what you're doing in in the academic arena, mm-hmm. arena of scholarship, and that. Um, uh, the, you know, the bottom line is that this is a kind of game which is premised on, uh, it, it's, it's very hard to make it work if you don't think that there is some sort of objective reality that, that sure. your, your uh, contending claims to truth are, are about. Um, but that it's, that the issue is how compelling is the evidence and the structure of the argument that you present, how well formulated are the basic concepts you work with, these kinds of things, and there isn't any kind of there isn't any relevant question about the morality of the individuals engaged in that mm. process. You can be a great footballer and a real uh, jerk off off the pitch, you know, and you can be a great academic and you know a real jerk or a saint and be a, you know it's not uh, what's what's not good is if what should be a kind of arena of competition over truth claims, strong arguments, strong you know reasons for believing certain things and not others, uh, becomes uh, turned into a, an arena of competition over kind of moral status. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, who who has the right to say certain things, and you know, uh, and uh, and bases the their authority not on this kind of truth claiming process, but more on a kind of inward moral authority. Um, that's, uh, 
deeply problematic for the process. Yeah. But right. I'm also saying it's fine to do that out in civil society and right. in right. other arenas. It's not it's it not its place. Yeah, right. it, it has its place. It's just that this is a rather delicate system, and it doesn't it doesn't work well if it's if people are if we're not all playing by the same rules. Mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. there is a kind of weakening of that the idea that we're all playing by the same rules, which is has to do with a lot of the conflicts that are happening in the university sector these days around the whole host of things around academic freedom, freedom of speech, uh, you know, uh, trigger warnings, or, you know, I think there's some place where I make a reference, but, you know, as, as Jonathan Haidt puts it, you know, is, you know, is the mission of the university to pursue t truth or is it to pursue justice? And, and my view is it's to pursue truth. Mm. You know, it's, we're not, we're not a particularly qualified bunch to pursue justice. You know, that's not, you know, we're no more moral than anybody mm. else, right? So. Do you think that, like, do you think some people, because what's the distinction between justice and truth in your in your mind does like because to me truth inevitably inevitably leads to a more fair just society so where would be the distinction in um well i mean the way you put it there i mean truth is you know is not the same thing as justice it's a it's something that you think sort of generates it I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that I'm convinced of that. I, I think, um, you know, it, it could well be that uh, some kinds of truth, uh, well, let me set that aside and say, you know, there are lots of different conceptions of justice, and it depends partly on what your conception Fair of justice enough. is, because part of what we're talking about here is there's a strong notion that justice is uh, the equitable distribution of resources. But of course, there's another concept you find in the philosophical tr tradition that justice is giving each according to what's due to them. Right. And some maybe do a lot <laughs> because of things they've done, and some maybe do very little, right? right? So um, those are very... Uh, it might be that that second conception of justice is a bit more concordant with an idea that truth will lead to justice. Right. I think uh, that's probably where I was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, which, you know, there may be some truth to that, but on, on some level, I, you know, my view is that um, uh, you know, apart from allocating rewards for good scholarship, <laughs> you know, or you know, long service to the institution, the kind of usual things, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, there every every complex organization has its internal uh, matters of justice and fairness, right? That 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 it has to live by to make itself work. Um, but um, but I don't think people in universities are particularly well qualified to um, uh, make proclamations about justice out there in society. I mean. Not in the sense that, you know, I don't think there should be moral philosophers and political philosophers who speculate and forth arguments about how we should think about it. But but um uh but it's not um I do see them as separate things and the job our job is to understand the world and how it works, you know, make arguments about what the implications of different ways of doing things might be. Uh but the job of pursuing justice in society that belongs in the political arena that's what political parties should be mm -hmm. fighting over that's what in campaigning groups in civil society you know uh and, and you know religious organizations all you know there are all sorts of things that for which which can make contending claims about what a just world would look like and and what the principles uh, that for achieving justice might be um so i guess it's the, it's the argument between the appropriate place of conversations of justice being in all places or some places because i think right. i think the, i think you like you pointed the sort of the those inclined to argue that well all places mm -hmm. because of their inherently political nature should be the places where conversations of justice take place which are suggesting that well the mm -hmm. university should be places of truth pursuit mm -hmm. and that the 
sort of intelligentsia, so to speak, that that are surrounding the academy mm. or academics, the journalists, activists, mm. religious types or religious communities. Those are the conversations where justice is, <clears throat> or politics and. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that makes it sound too pristine. It's not like, you know, I, I would, it'd be very odd to have a university environment where people didn't sometimes talk about what they thought sure, justice sure. was. Yeah, sorry. But, sorry. but um, uh, I mean, the point is not to diverge too far from the, from the core issue, which is that um, what we do in this particular institution is argue over claims about reality and how the world works and um uh and we get our reputations authority within that arena mm -hmm. from how well people think we're doing that um uh we don't get it from uh some sort of you know generic claim based on uh our identities or whatever uh uh to having a certain kind of moral authority, kind of you know, intrinsically, you know, you know, inbuilt in us, you know, that's that's not that just distorts the the debate, as sure. it were. You know? yeah. um, and uh, and it's you know it's a complicated thing because uh, part, as you rightly note, the, the there's a chapter that's about from churches to universities, right? And it's basically kind of arguing that, in a sense, universities occupy the social structural space that the church used to occupy as a, the center of learning and also the center of a debate about reality and truth. And <laughs> but the modern university um, has tended to shed a lot of that moral authority and, 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 and allow allow religion and other institutions to hold on to that and a lot of modern religions have sort of said oh you know science is fine it can do whatever it wants that's not you know that's not what we're concerned about we're mm -hmm. concerned about people's moral lives and just so there's a kind of division of labor that's happened there um but as a huge institution full of people uh trained <laughs> to make arguments and claims about the world uh, it almost naturally becomes the place where, where people, uh, you know, bring in uh, claims to kind of moral authority. You know, <laughs> because in some sense, you know, it's not exactly that the imprint of the church is still there, but in some sense, it's you know, it's it's uh, it, it requires a lot of you know stringent sort of <laughs> self discipline to kind of keep those things in, in check um, in that environment because, uh, you know, we, you know, you know, professor, professors now have the pulpit, you know, uh, and, and, and if you stand up and you have a kind of pulpit, it's very tempting to start telling people how they, you know, yeah. how they ought to live. Uh, there's a structural uh, push towards doing that. In the nature of the institution, uh, what incentive kind of like you know, yeah, and you know people you know academic or, attempt, or temptation might be a bit of a temptation way. and and you know natural aspects of ego play in here and stuff and uh, John, I'm I'm conscious of the time. Yeah, um, yeah. And you said you didn't want to stay long past five. Yeah, um, so uh, should we? Yeah, I was about to. There? Was about so, to say. Was there anything you wanted to say just to finish off um, about the book or about yourself? Or... Um, no, I mean, I, I I think I would just say uh, read it, um, but uh, also um, uh, it is although it's a, a much of it is about long historical transformation kind of across the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. It's mm -hmm. not it's not written about apart from the kind of last chapter where I kind of reflect on the present world. Sure. It's it's very historical, but. Uh, my purpose with the book is also to say, you know, how did this kind of society emerge? Um, there's a tendency to, when you talk about liberalism or liberal society, uh, to talk as though um, 
it's 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 the product product of liberal thinkers, philosophers, you know, you know, John Stuart Mill or whoever who kind of dreamed up a certain way of organizing ourselves, and then we've started to you know run our lives accordingly. But what I'm trying to say is that this peculiar thing that I'm calling liberal society wasn't intended by anyone. It emerged for a whole set of mm -hmm. evolutionary reasons. So often, you know, if if you're in that kind of society and you think it has value and you want to preserve it, in some sense you're left in the position of, you know, not just, you know, banging a drum and saying, you know, this is what I believe, but saying, look, this is a really complicated thing. <laughs> it's kind of fragile. It evolved under certain circumstances. Uh, understanding how we got here and what it is that's good about it that we want to preserve, um, and and what's not good and needs to be addressed and changed, um, is is the right attitude. Um, and I'll just close on this weird note that there's something about that that is kind of, in terms of thought styles or kind of philosophical traditions, close to a certain kind of you know Burkean conservative mm -hmm. thought <laughs> that you see society as this thing that's very complex, fragile, evolving, and you need to decide how to, what to maintain and what to try and change. But it involves a kind of skepticism about the idea that, oh, it's all terrible. And if we, you know, just did the right thing, we would wipe the slate clean and make sure. the world a better place. Or change is terrible. We need to go back to, you know, some pristine place when the social order was fine. Neither a social evolutionary view implies this kind of prudent, careful, how did we get here? What can we change? You know, that's the that's the attitude of the book. Oh. So I'm trying not to be too, you know, I don't have a, I'm not banging on a pulpit. I'm saying, look, this is how we got here. <laughs> no, no, that definitely, it definitely comes across in the book, mate. So uh, yeah. that's, I really enjoyed it. Um, right. Thank let's, you, John. Let's uh, show it again. One more time. There we go. Together. All together now. <laughs> Awesome. Well, John, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone at home, for watching. And we'll see you next time. See Take care of yourselves.